All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Hey everyone, welcome back to Your Brain on Science. You're here with me, Zarmin, today, and we'll be talking about the default mode network and how it relates to some theories in the psychedelic space. We'll also hear from a special guest, Haley Duran, on her self-entropic broadening theory and how that builds upon what we're going to talk about. So let's get right into it. Hey guys, today we're going to go in depth into a brain network called the default mode network. We're going to talk about what this is and how it relates to psychedelic science. So there's been a ton of buzz around the DMN. I'm going to call it the DMN from here on just because the default mode network is a bit long uh, because it plays a prominent role in one of Robin Carr Harris's theories about psychedelic action, the entropic brain theory. Um, if you listen to episode four, you'd have heard uh, me talk about this, um, but we'll talk about it a little later again here. Uh, the DMN also is just generally a very important brain network in terms of neuroscience. It, it plays a central role um, in a lot of different things. The default mode network is an anatomically defined network, including brain regions such as the posterior medial cortex, the angular gyrus, regions of the inferior frontal gyrus, the interior lateral middle temporal cortex, the medial prefrontal cortex, um, and the posterior parietal cortex. So it combines many regions from the frontal, temporal, and parietal lobes of our brain. This is the anatomical range that it occupies. What does it do? The DMN is associated with self-referential thinking, and it's active in the absence of immediate goal-directed attention. And it decreases in activation when an individual engages in some task-motivated behaviors. So this can be thought of as some baseline activation state of the brain in which it is engaged during all passive behaviors. I'm sitting here, I'm actively speaking into this mic, I'm, I'm recording a podcast. So this is a goal-directed behavior. The activity of my, my default mode network is going to be decreased as compared to the activity um, of other regions. But when I'm sort of just sitting here, maybe thinking about life, thinking about myself, that is when the DMN is going to be active. It is highly interconnected with other uh, brain networks, as you can imagine, such as the central executive network, which is crucial for maintaining and manipulating information uh, using working memory, and also for applying rule-based problem solving. The DMN is also closely intertwined with the salience network, which functions sort of as a toggle switch that decides what is relevant in terms of attention in relation to the current task or goal or conditions at hand. The DMN is also associated with various attentional networks, the dorsal and the ventral, which allocate our attentional resources to stimuli in the environment. Uh, now, these are just some of the relevant brain networks, but as you can imagine, the DMN is widely connected and highly interconnected. In cases of psychiatric disorders, such as major depressive disorder, we find that there's evidence that suggests that the DMN is hyperconnected to areas that predict levels of rumination, depressive rumination, which is sort of going over the same things over and over again and being unable to move on and be flexible in your thinking and your cognition. Data suggests that changes in the DMN in psychiatric disorders, such as major depressive disorder, go beyond just how strong the connections are here, but that there is also reduced and altered connectivity stability between key regions, which can lead to those aberrations that exacerbate uh, symptomatic progression. 
this hyperconnectivity of the DMN can be clearly seen as a target of many therapies, right? So, and many people try to do that. They try to pharmacologically alter connectivity of the DMN or through um, various other sort of therapies. So now we've discussed a little bit about how important the DMN is in self-referential thinking um, and how it can contribute to maladaptive rumination in cases of psychiatric disorder. But how is this area affected by psychedelics, right? That's what we're interested in. How do, do psychedelics affect the DMN? Psychedelics are something that we know that changes an individual's relation to the self in dramatic, dramatic ways, right? So how do psychedelics affect the DMN? We know from Robin Carhart Harris's entropic brain theory, uh, which posits that under the acute experience of psychedelics, activity of the default mode network is decreased to allow for brain areas that have not been connected before to be able to connect, uh, which can, as you can imagine, fundamentally shift the way an individual is thinking about the self um, during that acute experience. I'm now going to talk a little bit about this comprehensive review article that synthesized psychedelic studies looking at the effect of psychedelics on the DMN. Uh, this included studies using psilocybin, ayahuasca, LSD, um, and they use measures such as fMRI, EEG, and MEG. So the review found that there are clear associations between a psychedelic's ability to reduce the functional connectivity within the DMN, so how strongly the different brain regions within this network are talking to each other, um, and increase its connectivity to other networks. So intra-connectivity is decreased, but inter-connectivity between other networks is actually increased. Um, and there was an association between this, altered states of consciousness, so how altered an individual's state of consciousness felt, right? And this is through subjective uh, responses on various measures and various scales and therapeutic outcomes. It, it was found that all three of these things are interconnected and have a very, very clear sort of relationship in terms of therapeutic outcome, which is very, very interesting. Uh, these drugs acutely, meaning under the influence of, like while you're under the influence of these drugs, uh, these drugs acutely decrease that functional connectivity within the DMN and increase between network connectivity amongst other networks as well. So this unique shift in neural connectivity and, and how these networks are connected reflect a shift, a modular, more segregated brain to more interconnected global network function which is very, very, very interesting. So it goes from these specific brain areas are tuned for this one specific thing. Um, so very modular, very segregated, right? This thing A happens in brain region A, thing B happens in brain region B. And mind you, there's connection, of course, and region B is going to have effect on region A. But under the influence of psychedelics, it's highly, highly interconnected. And all of the brain regions that might not necessarily talk to each other normally, right, might not be functionally connected under normal, functionally connected. So this fits in with the entropic brain theory, right? And it provides us with an impetus to explore network level changes as a mechanism for therapeutic benefit in response to psychedelic administration. It is interesting though, to keep in mind that alterations to the DMN are associated with psychiatric disorders and psychiatric disorder symptom progression. But in the case of psychedelics, we see them be helpful, right? We refer to this as a change that's maybe necessary to occur in whatever needs to happen after the experience. So this is an interesting paradox, right? And with this, I want us to shift our thinking a little bit to the idea of ego dissolution. 
Um, now, ego dissolution is something that can occur under very high doses of psychedelics and often through meditation and other ways as well. Um, but it refers to the phenomenon that people experience in which you completely lose your ego, right? You lose your connection to your sense of self as a being, as a bot, as as a being in your body, as a body that occupies the earth, and rather become part of the larger melee of the world and of the system and of the universe. Um, I think that's the best way that I can describe it. There's many, you know, prescribed definitions of that, but it's sort of losing your sense of self and becoming connected with everything else around you. You ego dissolute. Um, so now the DMN is an area associated with self-referential thinking. Um, and the results that we just talked about show decreases in DMN activity and increased connectivity amongst other brain regions with the DMN. So it's logical here to think that such changes to an area important for thinking about the self are going to have an effect on how an individual relates to the self, right, after all of this. How does the DMN contribute to ego dissolution? What is the mechanism by which it occurs? Well, for this, I actually got to chat with the super, super talented uh, Haley Duran, who is a psychology PhD student over in Alabama. Uh, she just published her self-entropic broadening theory, which aims to understand ego dissolution and also separate it from the idea of these drugs as inducing changes that mimic psychiatric conditions. So let's hear what Haley had to say. Um, so Haley, please introduce yourself to everyone here. Hey everyone, well I am a PhD student in the drug use and behavior lab at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And my work kind of focuses on understanding the underlying mechanisms of psychedelics and how they're able to produce lasting changes in people's lives and, and also how they relate to sort of darker um, psychological states, if you will. Like historically, psychedelics have been compared to psychosis. So what is this self-entropic broadening theory? <laughs> and I know um, that there's a few components of it, uh, a few different theories that sort of build into this, which is the entropic brain theory um, and the broaden and build theory. Um, so why don't you give us a quick little primer and breakdown on what this is um, and how you were sort of led to this idea. And I know this is really, really big and we're going to break it down even more, but uh, if you could give us just a quick primer and the, the broadest way that you can say this. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so a lot of people who might have psychedelic science might have heard of the entropic brain um, theory or model. And the idea of that is that under the influence of psychedelics, there is an increase in entropy in the brain during the acute effects. And this supposedly sort of correlates to a richer subjective experience. Mm -hmm. And... So the interesting thing about the entropic brain is not only does it kind of say that psychedelic states are indexed by this higher brain entropy, but um, dreaming states, supposedly psychosis, um, creativity, and then it also um, kind of creates that there's a lower side of the continuum as well that mm -hmm. is marked by a decrease in information richness. So this is um, conditions like depression. Uh, coma, anesthetized states. Um, so that might to people sound a little bit vague and like some things that are thrown to get things are thrown together that don't really quite share that many similarities. Um, yeah. or at least that's what I thought initially. But, you know, the idea that the brain under psych does become 
sort of more chaotic and this might lead to a richer experience to me that did seem sort of sound but i wanted to kind of break down what those differences between those different states might be some more so that's kind of like the first sort of model that influenced me um a bit and yeah. broaden and build theory uh people in psychedelic science probably haven't heard of this theory before necessarily but so the broaden and build theory it's kind of a older um positive psychology theory that states that when you're when you experience a positive um what happens is your attentional scope sort of increases you are able to see like the bigger picture of what's going on uh-huh. and because of that mm-hmm. you're more aware of different things in your environment and you might have sort of a broader repertoire of thoughts and actions in turn and this kind of change in your style of thinking might lead you to you know engage in more helpful behaviors and those behaviors if they're you know also sparking positive emotion kind of in turn create a positive upward spiral so interesting so is this um so i watched your talk actually that is up on youtube and i can link it for all of our listeners here as well um but you use a really great example of um, you're going to the beach to drink with your friends and someone who is um, perhaps has alcohol dependence is just going to see um, is going to hyper focus on the fact that there might be alcohol there where uh, as opposed to um, someone else who's going to be able to be like, oh, there is a vast richness to this experience, right? We're going to the beach. I'm with my friends. Yes, alcohol is involved, but there are also many other things. So like broadening um, your sort of repertoire of, of experiences of things that you'll let yourself experience. Is that accurate? Is that example, um, jive with sort of what you just explained? Yeah, I think that's a really good example. And you can kind of see there that there's this parallel, um, then within tropic brain and the experience becoming sort of more rich. Mm -hmm. So kind of maybe what could be going on, acute effects of psychedelics, people experience that more entropic brain state with where they're having their attentional scope um, broadened. And this is allowing them to sort of glean new perspectives on problems they might be facing on their, in their lives, garnering new insights. And all of that can be quite helpful um, for people. Yeah. But it also, in some ways, share some parallels with psychosis for a long time i think in the fields there's been this older school of thought that psychedelics are purely useful and we say psychedelics but you know historically lsd has been used for this um that psychedelics are good psychomimetics or that they are drugs that are useful for um sort of inducing or mimicking the experience of psychosis or specifically schizophrenia um so in research they were actually used uh to induce uh the positive symptoms of schizophrenia because of course there are positive and the negative symptoms positive symptoms being things like um auditory and visual hallucinations things are things that are being added to your sensory experience as opposed to the negative symptoms being uh like a flat affect um sort of dysfunction in cognitive thinking, so on and so forth. But there's, yeah, there's there's been this very, very interesting um, old school of thought that psychedelics are only useful as psychomimetics. But as you mentioned earlier, uh, there's really like a pendulum of things, right? Like you can swing between an increased richness in your experience 
um, and also then decreases, right? Like after the fact and, and you in your, in your talks and your work, you mentioned self-focus, this increased self-focus and decreased self-focus, which I guess we can get into later, but um, I really would love your thoughts on psychedelics as psychomimetics or psychedelics versus psychomimetics. So what's the difference here? And what's um, the important, uh, what are the important caveats sort of you want us to take away? So I think one thing to be aware of with the whole psychotomimetic model is that there definitely are aspects of psychedelics that do share parallels with psychosis. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this for such a long time in the field. I mean, that was what people initially were researching in the 1950s and still it has had like a residual sort of effect of our understanding today. And I don't think that would have stuck around if there wasn't some validity to the idea. Um, But at the same time, psychedelics are not really like psychosis at all. And I think that Mm -hmm. to me kind of comes down to the sort of self disruptions you might see under psychedelic induced states and psychosis, at least under typical sort of conditions. There's always some exceptions, of course. So the idea of that is, in general, I would say with psychedelics, there's a reduction of self-focus, a reduction in information kind of being processed in terms of the self in a sort of self-referential manner. So you think about something like ego dissolution, um, the mystical experience, um, ah, all of these states are kind of, despite their sort of different terminologies and whatnot, are marked by this feeling as if they're merged into the environment, um, feeling as if they're maybe observing aspects of their life kind of from an outsider perspective, mm-hmm. or one that's less sort of ruminative um, than typical. And this helps people you know, gain insights and see that maybe they're more connected to others than they initially thought. Yeah. Um, whereas with psychosis, um, you know, some people will say, oh, there is ego disturbances um, in psychosis, but that's kind of a really sort of outdated understanding or a limited understanding of what alterations in psychosis. It's based on, you know, psychoanalytic theory, which in general in psychology is not sort of the main working framework in yeah. but, um, I think that there is typically an increase in self-focus um, in the psychotic. Typically, it's kind of marked by an increase in self-focus. Um, so somebody, you know, who's having a psychotic episode, they might be walking down the street and think that a random person is talking about them or is it looking at them in a strange way. They might think that, you know, a sign or just anything sort of random has a special meaning for them. It might mean that they're, you know, I don't know, destined to become the Messiah or something like that. So people oftentimes, they can have this experience of the world that's more sort of information rich and chaotic, but it's typically sort of in terms of themselves. Um, So somebody could be, you know, thinking that the way the sun is shining somehow means that they have been like chosen by God or something like that. Um, Or that, you know, the way the car on the street means that they're being um, followed by the CIA, you know, all sorts of things like that. So the world does become 
more unpredictable. People kind of engage in something that I would like to call entropic processing. So this is kind of where your typical mental schemas about the world are broken. And because of that, you're trying to kind of hyperly make new connections and piecemeal together how the world works. And when that happens, kind of your predictions can become a bit off. And, you know, that might kind of lead people to have what they think are interesting insights. Um, But those insights might not be so helpful. They might be, oh, I must be being spied on or something like that. And, you know, I think that this sort of entropic processing idea, I think it also occurs under psychedelics. I think that, you know, this is partially why um, a lot of psychedelics people report feeling more creative, even though creativity sort of tasks often show that there's actually an impairment during the acute effects. Um, They're having more novel insights, but are those novel insights necessarily useful? Mm -hmm. Not always. Um, And so it's this kind of chaotic style of thought that um, and psychosis do share parallels, but when you get down to the alterations, people's sense of self, there seems to be significant discrepancies. And that's probably saying, at least in some sense, that self-experience is sort of vital for predicting long-term sort of mental health outcomes. So this idea that, you know, entropy, this entropic brain occurs under the acute experience of psychedelics that can be adaptive, you know, you're feeling more creative. Um, And at the level of neural networks, there's parts of your brain that are now freely able to connect with other parts of your brain that under your secondary state of consciousness, which is a car Harris coin term, uh, they wouldn't be able to, as opposed to this tropic processing, excuse me, that you just mentioned um, in psychotic states, right, where um, your, your brain might be making all of these connections and really it's more chaotic, right? Like entropy in a chaotic maladaptive way, as opposed to psychedelics, um, which I guess, you know, the acute experience is neither adaptive nor maladaptive. It's what comes after it, right? So I think that's a very, very interesting parallel that you're you're drawing there. You didn't get too much into this in your talk. And I think maybe you do talk about it a little bit in your paper, but at the level of neural networks, right? There are di- definitely differences and similarities and differences among- in the acute psychedelic state. Um, and could you talk on that a little bit? So a lot of people kind of are familiar with the default mode network. That's yeah. kind of been like the hot topic in psychedelic science. You know, you read Michael Pollan's book and it's everywhere. <laughs> but, but, you know, there is some validity to this being an important network in the brain for understanding mental health. Um, and it probably is kind of one of the most studied networks in both two psychedelics and psychosis. So during the experience of psychosis, oftentimes, like during the early sort of maybe first episode or so, people do show an increase in within network connectivity. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is kind of typically the opposite of what you would see under psychedelics. Um, People might say, oh, that must be directly like saying like the ego is like stronger in psychosis you don't necessarily know that um but it's just showing that there are distinctions kind of on a neurological level as well um what's interesting is that for psychosis this within network connectivity seems to be very strongly sort of predictive 
of long-term outcomes and who doesn't get better after an episode of psychosis. So there are people yeah. out there who will have an episode and they'll be fine long-term. They won't develop schizophrenia. Um, mm-hmm. So, but some of these people who do, they show this higher um, within network connectivity um, and with psychedelics, you know, the alterations in this network are oftentimes, but not always sort of predictive of treatment outcomes or personality changes and such. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you read uh, the paper that came out, I think, um, recently or a year ago. I Everything blends together now, but it was a paper from the Rajpal group. I think Hardik Rajpal is the lead author on the paper, and it's titled psychedelics and schizophrenia distinct alterations to Bayesian inference and I think they they use two measures of connectivity I think they use EEG and they use lumples of connectivity uh, lumples of excuse me uh, complexity so a measure of how diverse or complex the brain signals were and transfer entropy which was a measure of direct functional connectivity and they found that there were very clear differences right like in the way that individuals under the acute experience of psychedelic, what they got from EEG there and what they got from individuals with schizophrenia. And that was that in schizophrenia, the data showed an increase in transfer uh, transfer entropy, which is that measure of connectivity, which is exactly what you just mentioned, right? Um, whereas all, all of the data, um, so schizophren- uh, individuals with schizophrenia and also people under the acute influence of psychedelics showed an increase in the complexity of their EEG signals. So I think it's really interesting. And I think it's very, very important, right, to remember that um, there is going to be overlap and there's definitely going to be places where this diverges. And I think it's really important to have something like your theory, um, you know, which makes it a little bit clearer, because I think it's really important to remember Yes, you know, psychedelics are, have been very helpful and, and whatever. But as you mentioned, you know, there is a dark side to all of this. And these are everything that people experience. These symptoms are really closely related uh, to the symptoms of um, schizophrenia and, and other psychotic states. So I think very interesting. Anything else you would like to tell us and you would like to add about all of this stuff? Very, very cool and very interesting. I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind is people often sort of since psychedelics have been called psychotomimemics and there is this overlap, they assume that somehow, you know, exposure to a psychedelic might increase the risk of schizophrenia. Um, something sort of mimicking maybe some of the symptoms acutely does not necessarily imply that the risk is greatly increased. So yeah. something like cannabis that has been shown to actually increase the risk of developing schizophrenia quite a bit um but you know i would say maybe that doesn't show as much overlap um acutely with the symptoms of psychosis so just it's important that people don't conflate something being a risk for developing mm-hmm. a disorder with something sort of sharing you know some of the similar a similar phenomenology yeah a great point there you know there isn't any data on on that Um, And as far as we know, there hasn't been any outcomes which would suggest that these, you know, these drugs pose a risk for people and will increase likelihood of experiencing psychotic psychotic breaks, X, Y, and Z. Um, We've, of course, heard of the serotonin syndrome, right? And that's a very biological, very real thing that does happen persisting, uh, this persisting... um, 
oh my God, I always forget the, it's PPD, right? I always forget what it stands for. HPPD? Uh, yes, HPPD. Hallucinogen persisting. Perceptual disorder. Perceptual disorder. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I always, always forget. So these are, you know, these are very real things that have been documented. Um, but you're so right. Like the risks of developing stuff, there's no data and no research on that. And it's really important not to conflate, uh, not to conflate those things. So this has been all really, really great and interesting. And now I have a question just for you, you know, Haley, as a PhD student in, in psychedelics and in the psychedelic field, where do you see all of this work uh, going? Where do you see the fields moving towards? What are maybe your hopes for everything? I'd love to know how sort of you personally feel about all of this. Um, I think one thing that's going to be really important going forward is kind of understanding the impact that naturalistic um, psychedelic use has on people, um, mm-hmm. including understanding like the neurological effects, because, you know, even as psilocybin is on its way to be approved as a medication, um, the vast majority of use, I imagine, for quite a while is still going to be with people just using these substances and understanding what that how that can impact people's mental health um, and the neural mechanisms involved, I think is something that really should be focused on a bit more. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a push to do that right now. My work, uh, your work is so interesting. My work directly looks to get at what you just said, right? Like the neural basis for change and exactly what's happening in the brain in response to uh, taking these drugs and uh, sort of what we can learn from that and and I think from a harm reduction lens, right, it's so important to understand the full potential of these drugs, the full potential of does potential for harm exist, right? Or is there just therapeutic, more therapeutic potential that we could be um, using, right, to the to its fullest or, or whatever it may be. So I totally agree. I think we're in the infancy, right, of this field. And there's so much more to do here. And it's people like you that are moving us forward. I'm so, so excited. And um, I, I mentioned this to Haley before we hopped on to talk to everyone, but um, we're actually going to be discussing her paper at our journal club. <laughs> so very, very exciting. Um, with that, um, I think, thank you so much, Haley, for meeting with me today and meeting with us and talking to the audience about your work. I think very, very interesting, very cool. And I cannot wait to see what you do next. Um, I think it's adding so much to, to the literature and to the field as it stands now. Um, and, and for everyone listening, I'm going to go ahead and post Haley's talk, which is on YouTube, um, and also her paper in the, the blog post that's going to be associated with this episode. But uh, with that, thank you so much, Haley. Um, I don't know if you have anything else that you want to add or you want to say to us. No, just thank you for having me on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode. And as always, uh, please subscribe, um, follow our blog post. And if you guys have any feedback, There's a couple of forms on the website, psychedelicbrainscience.com. If you guys would like to contribute to the podcast, you have something you want to talk about, go ahead and fill that out for us too. And we'd love to have you on and and talk to whoever we can, right? (laughs) So thanks, Haley. Thanks, everyone. Um, And we'll chat again soon. Bye, guys.